welcome to the weekly sermon podcast at the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. Let's go, Lord, more to prayer if we could. Gracious Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and you truly are a great God. We thank you for the mercy extended us on the cross through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and for the transformational work that you're doing in our hearts. I pray, Heavenly Father, that this morning that you would not only challenge us, but I pray, Father God, you would give us the courage and maybe even the wisdom to know how to respond to that challenge. Lord, we lift it to you today in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So today's Valentine's Day, guys. I hope you didn't forget. No, not really. I'll need that in a little bit. Uh, probably you are aware by now. If you're not, I'm going to give you one more warning uh, that many of our Connect groups this week are going to be moving into a Bible study. Perhaps yours isn't, but many of them will be. And I think we're going to have several new groups forming as well around a study called God Provides. And if you have that, Wes, put it up. Uh, the books, I think, Ray, still available back here at the Connect table. So if you have not yet decided whether you want to be a part of it or if you are considering that you may have friends that you would want to pull together a group for, uh, all of that's still very doable because it doesn't start until right now, right? And uh, so we'll be going through it for the remainder of the week. Now, I have not decided whether I'm going to preach through this entire uh, series of studies that the small groups do or not, but I am going to preach on it this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about, or let me back up, this week, you're going to be studying about some of the ways that God can provide. But what I want to do this morning is spend a little bit talking about why we often don't receive God's provision. And so if you would, we're going to go ahead and look at the story together. This is the story that the Bible study is going to cover. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is not a real widely known or used story. I don't know why. There's a, another similar story to it that's used much more often than this one is. Second Kings chapter 4, beginning verse 1, it says, One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors and go to your house with your sons, shut the door behind you, pour olive oil from your flask into the jar, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. 
There aren't any more, he told her, and then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. A story of God's provision. It's a pretty basic story in a lot of ways. First of all, you have a, a woman whose husband has died. And probably a young woman, because it seems that there are two children left behind. And, and not unlike it is today whenever someone dies, one of the first things I discovered when my dad died is that the creditors get in line pretty quick. And they want to make sure that they're going to get paid. And it was exactly the same in this day. And so evidently her husband had some creditors and he owed some pretty significant debts. And whenever they came knocking on her door, she didn't have anything of significance with which to pay them. And they said, well... That's all right, because we see you have two sons, we'll take those. Now, in our day, that would never happen. Because in our day, at least in our nation, we have things like bankruptcy courts and legal means by which we can be protected and disentangle ourselves from some of those kinds of debts. But in this day, that wasn't true. And the common way that a debt would be settled if a person could not pay was that the person themselves would be taken into slavery or else a member of their family would. And that's all the creditors are proposing here. They're saying, that's fine. You don't have money to pay. That's fine. We're just going to take your kids. They had every right to do that. It sounds extremely harsh to us today, but they had every right to do that. And as you can imagine, this woman was absolutely terrified. And so she turned to the only person that she could think of that could help. Evidently, her, her husband had been a prophet of sorts. He had had an association with Elisha. And Elisha was known as the greatest prophet at that time that was living. And so she, she went out and she looked up the prophet Elisha. She told him what was going on. And uh, Elisha approached her problem in kind of an unusual way, I think. Um, she said, Elisha, I have this debt. I can't pay it. Elisha was the head of something called the School of Prophets. Here it's called the Group of Prophets, School of Prophets. But evidently, there was in that day, it was customary, there were certain prophets that were so attached to God, so good at what they did, that they were perceived to be masters. And people would come to them that, that thought they might have the gift of prophecy to learn more about prophesying from the master. It was kind of a discipleship program, and they literally lived in communities together. And so there were a group of prophets that not only lived with Elisha, but went with him everywhere that he, that he went. I don't know if any money exchanged hands through all of this, but I do know that they had the means to live. And so it's entirely plausible that, that once Elisha heard that this poor widow of a man that was a part of his group of prophets had died, that he maybe, perhaps, could have just went and said, you know, here's the dough. Maybe he had some people out there. I find that in ministry, many times, we know a few people that if there's a real significant need that we have, we can call on them and they'll provide for it. Maybe there was somebody in Elisha's life like that, but that's not what he did either. He didn't do any of that. Instead, what he did is he asked her, what do you have? And she said, well, I don't have really anything. I mean, I've got a little bit of oil and maybe a little flour to make some bread. And Elisha said, that's good. Bring the oil. Take the oil. 
Tell your sons to go and ask the neighbors for jars and get lots and lots of jars and, and begin to fill those jars. And so that's exactly what she did. And they filled jar after jar after jar. The video that you'll see this week does a good job of, of painting that picture. And then as quick as she had filled as many jars as they could collect, Elisha told her, now, sell the oil, settle your debts, and you and your sons can live on what's left over. So it must have been quite an amount of, of oil and quite an amount of money. So what Elisha essentially did was instead of providing for her how we might ordinarily expect, he essentially made a way for her to provide for herself. Imagine, to paint a more contemporary picture of it, imagine being 55 or 60 or 65 years old. And, you know, by the time that you have lived to be that age, many times you've kind of worked your way up in the world a little bit. You've achieved a few things. You've gained some respect. You're making a fair amount of money. And, and so you're living the lifestyle that's commensurate with the money that you would make as a 55 or 60-year-old person. And then you find out you're going to lose your job. And I mean, maybe you weren't planning on it or thinking about it, and immediately you panic because perhaps your house isn't paid off. Maybe you still have a, a car that's not paid off. Maybe you have some other debts that are out there, and you automatically think, man, what am I going to do? I'm 60 years old. Who's going to want to hire me? So you start firing off resumes. You start making phone calls. You, you're wanting, hopefully, to step into something that can take care of you just as well as you were being taken care of so that you won't lose your stuff. But what happens to us at that age a lot of times? I mean, it's tough. And so the weeks go by and maybe even a few months go by and whatever you had laid aside, you've already paid it on all of your bills and now the handwriting is on the wall. Maybe it's even already happened. Maybe you've had a car repossessed. Maybe you are at the point where they are about to put you out of your house and, and you literally might be facing homelessness and you, you don't know what to do. And so finally you call out to God. Maybe you have some prayer partners. Maybe you get them together and, and, and you have a, a, a prayer time and God speaks in the midst of that prayer time right straight to your heart. And he asks you, what do you have? You say, Lord, what do I have? I'm 60 years old. I've lost my car. I'm losing my house. I, what do I have? I have a few old clothes and maybe my old lawnmower and weed eater. And the Lord says, that's all you need. He said, I want you to contact everybody on your email list. I want you to call everybody that's in your telephone. And I want you to tell them what's going on and ask them if you can mow their yard. And before you know it, you have so many people lined up to mow your yard that you literally have to hire two or three hands just to help you get that done. And many of those turn into repeat customers. And before you know it, you're making more at that crazy lawn mowing racket than you ever made before in all of your life. Now, it's not the provision that you maybe would have expected when you were praying, but it is provision. Amen? And that's exactly what God did for this widow. She couldn't have been more surprised or amazed if God would have put a gold brick down right in front of her. Truly, it was a miracle. So, there's some truths I want to look at from this story this morning because I think it applies to so many of our lives. The first truth I want us to see is this. 
Trouble, stress, and danger are going to come to every one of us. Trouble, stress, and danger coming your way. If they haven't gotten there yet, you're probably still really young. Because if you live to be old enough, it's going to happen. And it's going to land right in the middle of you. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said this, In this world you will have trouble. I still think it's the truest words that he ever spoke. Because we can absolutely know that they're going to come true. I don't know what those troubles will be. They may be health troubles. They may be financial troubles. They may be relationship troubles. They may be mental health troubles. They may be family issues. They may be legal issues. But whatever they are, some problem is going to look you up. And you're going to have it. And when those troubles come, when that problem hits, it is going to consume an amazing amount of your time and energy. It truly is. You think about that widow. Think about those creditors knocking on that door and asking, you know, asking her to pay. She explains that she can't possibly pay. She doesn't have anything. They look over there at her children and say, tell you what, ma'am, we'll take those kids. Do you think she slept that night? Not a chance. Not a chance. I promise you, she tossed and turned and, and thought about it. She played it out in her mind. She thought of it from every angle that you can possibly think of a problem. She thought of begging. She thought about borrowing. She thought about looking up maybe distant family members. Clearly, she didn't have anyone close that would help her that you normally think. She thought of, did, is there anyone that she could call for help? She probably thought of running away. Maybe even of becoming a prostitute. Maybe even of hiding her children out somewhere where the creditors couldn't find them. I mean, she thought of that problem from every conceivable idea. And after she had thought of that problem, every way that a problem can be thought of, do you know what she did next? Somebody knows. Oh, man, y'all are so wrong. That problem hit her. She thought about it all night long. It went round and round in her head. She thought about it from every conceivable angle that you can imagine. And after she had thought of it every way that it could possibly be thought of, do you know what she did? She thought of it some more. After she'd made the full circle, she just got right back in the circle that she was in and she, she played the same old record around and around and around and around. She couldn't get rid of it. And until she found a solution to it, she wasn't going to have a moment's peace. She wasn't going to have a moment's rest and she knew it. What had happened was that this problem had moved into her head. And it had, you know, basically everything was gone. All the furniture had been moved out. There was nothing left in her mind but this problem. That's the only thing that her mind could come back to. How do I know this? Yeah, because I've had problems. And you have too. And we know that that is many times exactly the response that we have to them. And the bad thing about these kinds of problems is that they can have consequences that go far beyond the problem itself. 
I mean, we've read all of the literature that's out there. We, we know what stress can do. That it brings high blood pressure. It can cause, it can cause heart issues. Many people struggling with stress begin addictions. They consider suicide. There's evidence out there that maybe even some cancers and even some diabetic issues may spring from extreme stress. And that's what comes with these kinds of problems. And probably every one of us knows somebody who's been through that. When I first came to Ellis County a long time ago now, um, right before I'd gotten here, and I was thankful it happened right before I got here, not right after I got here. But immediately before I got here, three prominent citizens in Ellis County had committed suicide. Bam, 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 right in a row. Well-known people, well-loved people. Why? Because they had these kinds of problems. They had a problem that moved into their head and they didn't know how to get rid of it. And they, they couldn't see an answer or a solution to it. And they kept playing it. And finally, the only solution that they saw, the only way to, to make the music stop was, was to stop themselves. It's a dangerous thing. Can I remind you of something that Jesus said? I want you to open your Bible to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 28. These are words that you will have heard before. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He also said that if we would take his yoke upon us and let him teach us, that we would find rest for our souls. And the fact that we are so consumed with stress as a people tells me something. And what it tells me is that we are not carrying our burden to Jesus. Or at least we're not giving our burden to Jesus. I'm not saying that we don't pray about our problems because I suspect that, that most of the time that we do. But I think more often than not, even as we are praying, even as we are asking Jesus to help us, we are playing that problem over and over in our mind, trying from every angle to figure out what to do about it, even as we profess that we're giving it to the Lord. Quite a few years ago, Chris did a sermon, and I'm plagiarizing it completely. But he did a sermon using a helium balloon, just like this one. And he said, you know what we do when we carry our problems to the Lord? He said, Lord, I've got this issue in my life. And it's bigger than I am. And I don't know what to do about it, Father. I don't know the answer to it. I, I, I have no place else to turn. So, Lord, I'm giving it to you. 
But almost before we get through praying, what do we do? We take it back. It's not that we're not uh, lifting it to the Lord, so to speak. It's just that we're not turning loose of the string. We're carrying that problem to the Lord and, and we're saying, Lord, I want you to take care of this problem for me. And yet at the same time, we continue to be in charge of it. And we think that it would be nice if God would help us with our problem, but we're going to continue to manage it and hold on to it. That's the problem that we have. And this is in spite of the fact that Jesus promised that he would give us rest. It's also in spite of the fact that Jesus promised that he would provide everything that we need. I want you to look at Matthew 6. You're pretty close. Look at Matthew 6, 24. This is another passage that you will have heard. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, and you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make clothing. And yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he not certainly care for you? Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. I think the traditional language is seek first the kingdom of heaven or seek first the kingdom of heaven in, in his righteousness and he will provide everything that you need. Those are two pretty amazing promises that we've just looked at. First of all, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you will just come to me and take my yoke upon you, you will find rest for your souls. And then in Matthew chapter 6, he promises us that if we put God's kingdom first and seek his righteousness, that our needs will be provided for. I mean, those are central passages of scripture regarding what God will do for us. So my question to you this morning is, what keeps us from releasing our problems to the Lord? Why do we keep it on a string? Why do we hold on to it rather than just laying it on the Lord the way Scripture admonishes us to? How many of you were about to have an impeachment trial? Everybody been keeping up with that? Not me too much. Kind of just, I'd rather not. But it is. We're going to have an impeachment trial. And the accusation is that President Trump called another world leader, and offered what they are calling a quid pro quo, which basically is a Latin word that means this for that. 
So he called the leader of Ukraine, allegedly, and he said, listen, there's some corrupt things going on as far as I'm concerned. And it has to do with his company called Burisma, and I think the vice president's son may be tangled up in it, maybe even the, the ex-vice president himself, and I don't know what it is, but I want you to look into it. And uh, I, you know, there's some military aid, and if you would do that for me, I would make sure that you get this military aid in an expeditious fashion, and if not, maybe I won't. In other words, it was a this, if you'll do this, I'll do that. That's called a quid pro quo. That's what Congress is alleging that Trump did. And in their view, they think that's appropriate. And I am not surprised that they think it's inappropriate. Maybe it is inappropriate in, on, on, the, on that level. But uh, I will tell you that one of the reasons why I think that that problem is being attacked as it is, is because in our culture, quid pro quo has always, well, it has come to carry a very negative connotation with it. A this for that. If you do something for me, I'll do something for you. It's just, it's not looked at favorably. For example, if I knew that there's Cowboy sitting on the front row, good for him. He's paying attention. And if I were to know that Cowboy had a need in his life, and I went to Cowboy and I said, tell you what, Cowboy, I love you, brother, and I see there's something going on in your life and you need some help. I want to give you a couple of hundred dollars just because I know you need it. And I put it in his hand, no strings attached. That's a good thing, right? But what about if old Ray had a problem? And I knew Ray had a problem, and I said, man, Ray, I, I hear you're struggling, and, and uh, I want to help you out. I really do. And he said, man, I, I could use it. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I got a thousand bucks that I could spare. And uh, it's not a loan. It's not a loan. I, I'm just going to give you this thousand bucks, but uh, understand something, Ray. Sometime I might need a favor. And whenever I decide I need that favor, I'm going to have you in my phone, and then we're going to discuss it. Now, which one of those is the better situation in your thinking? Is it the money I offer to cowboy, or is it the money I offer to Ray? I'm going to say the vast, vast majority of people are always going to say that it's that money with no strings attached. We have come to favor in our culture those, those interactions or exchanges that don't have any strings attached. But I want to challenge that this morning a little bit. If I have a relationship, brothers and sisters, where all I ever do is give, 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 and the person on the other side receives, 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 and I never get anything back in that relationship, what do you call that? I call it dysfunctional. I think if there is a relationship where one person is always doing the giving and the other person's always doing the receiving and there, there's never anything gotten out of that relationship, there's something wrong with that relationship. And maybe you have some of those in your life. And if you do, what I can tell you is someday you will pull the plug. Because those relationships drain you. They drain you Mentally, they drain you physically. They may even drain you financially. I mean, if you just keep giving and nothing comes back, it, it's, it's exhausting. It's dysfunctional.
And, and uh, I think that that really is not the way that God intends our relationships to be. I want you to look at Ephesians with me. Uh, Ephesians 5. And probably almost all of you are aware of what's in Ephesians 5. But this is a portion of Scripture that deals with relationships between people. Particularly relationships in our family, but there's some other relationships laid out there too. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning verse 21. Relationships. What are they supposed to be like? It says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so also you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Is marriage supposed to be a one-way street? No. And he boils it down in that last sentence. He said, wives, I'm calling on you in this relationship to give respect to your husband. To the husbands, he said, I'm calling on you men to give love to your wives, sacrificial love to your wives. Continue reading on, though. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, and this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Is the relationship we have with our children even supposed to be a one-way relationship? No. There are things that the Lord expects from our children. He expects our children to obey us and to respect us. And he said, in that way, it will go well for you. But he also says to us as fathers, and I think it applies to mothers. I wish they had even put the word parents here. But as parents, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to raise our children in a way that they are not frustrated and exasperated and angry and upset. As far as it depends on us. Doesn't always depend on us. But it's a two-way relationship. Well, let's read on. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart, 
Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Master, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Well, what's he call on here? The slave is to respect and serve his master with enthusiasm, and the master is to treat the slave as a brother in the Lord because they have one heavenly father. It's not a one-way relationship. Even slavery isn't, wasn't supposed to be. So all these relationships, they're, they're not give, give, give on one side and receive, receive, receive. It, it, it's a give and take kind of relationship. And as you read this, guys, I think it becomes very, very apparent that that is the essence of what a healthy relationship is supposed to be. A two-way street, not a one-way street. It's give and receive, not just give only. There is nothing inherently good or beautiful about a one-way, dysfunctional, draining relationship. You hear me? Nothing good or beautiful about a one-way, draining, dysfunctional relationship. And that's why all relationships with God are two-way relationships. Two-way. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. We're going to look at some of the... Um, Expectations of the covenant or requirements of the covenant. Exodus chapter, chapter 19 beginning verse 1. This is God's agreement with his people Israel after he carried them out of slavery. It says exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. And after breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. And then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, notice that, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, then you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. God said, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, then I will be your God. And I will choose you from all the people on the earth to be my chosen people, a, a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is not a no-strings-attached relationship that God is proposing with these people. There is a big string attached. He says, I will be your God, and you can be my people, but I will only be your God what? If you will obey me. God says, if you will do this, then I will do that. Quid pro Indeed, it is only when Israel ceases to keep the demands of the covenant that God begins to punish them, that he uproots them from their land and they're taken into captivity and all of that. As a matter of fact, if you 
are in a connect group, I would encourage you this week, guys, to look at Jeremiah 11, verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to take time this morning, but you see very clearly why God punished the people. And it was because they didn't hold up their end of that two-way relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. Even though this was a quid pro quo, it was a heck of a good deal, right? Look at Deuteronomy 28. Look at what he offered these folks. I don't know how much of this I'm going to read. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is the blessing of being in that two-way relationship with God. Deuteronomy 28, beginning verse 1. God says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all His commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. The Lord will conquer your enemies when they attack you. They will attack you from one direction, but they will scatter from you in seven. The Lord will guarantee a blessing for everything you do and fill your storehouses with grain. The Lord will bless you in the land that he has given you. If you fully obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, the Lord will establish you as his holy people as he swore that he would do. Then all the nations of the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord and they will stand in awe of you. And really, it just keeps going. Blessings. I mean, it is a quid pro quo deal, but it's a sweet deal. God said, listen, if you will just love me and obey me, here's all of the blessings that I promise I will pour out on you. In some ways, that is still the nature of our relationship with God today. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that our relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord is quid pro quo. It's not exactly that. We are saved by the grace of God alone, by faith in Christ alone. However, if we accept the offer of salvation and forgiveness that Christ has come to offer us, if we accept that, God does expect something from us, doesn't He? He does expect something from us. Look at 1 John chapter 2, all the way at the other end of your Bible, all the way to the back. You'll see Revelation and then just go back forward a little bit. You'll get to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. God gives us the free gift of salvation. We say it's a free gift and indeed it is. But He does in fact expect something from us on behalf of that gift. It's not a quid pro quo. But it is a healthy expectation just like we would have a healthy expectations in any relationship that we would enter into. Any healthy two-way relationship. 1 John chapter 2 beginning verse 1. My dear children, I'm writing to this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He's Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Let me rephrase that. 
And we can be sure that we know Him intimately, that we have a relationship with Him if we obey His commandments. If someone, verse 4, claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's words truly show how completely they love Him. And this is how we know that we are living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. When we enter into that relationship with Christ, He expects us to follow Christ. When we accept the salvation that Jesus offered on the cross, He at least expects us to love Him for offering Himself for us. And He expects us to try to model our lives and to live according to the way that He lived. Those who have a relationship with God should live their lives as Jesus did. I think that truth, that God saves us by His grace, but He does expect love and obedience in return. I think we know that. I don't think I'm telling you anything that you instinctively don't understand. But I think it's that instinctive understanding of that that causes us to be so reticent about trusting God in our lives. Because if we trust God to be our provider, then what we're afraid of is that that provision might have a string attached. In other words, that if we ask God to provide something for us, maybe God will ask us to do something for Him. And maybe if we yield control of our lives to God, then God might take our life in a direction that we particularly didn't want to go. I think that if we could just turn our problems over to God and fully expect that God would provide for us and then leave us alone, it'd be easy peasy. If we really thought we could just lay our burdens on Jesus 100% and God would provide for us every time and expect nothing Man, I think that'd be easy. But it's not that way, and I think that we know it. We suspect that God might want some measure of control in our lives if we go to Him, and that's the reason a lot of times that we don't really get serious when we turn our burdens over to Him. It's not that we don't want God's help, it's that we don't want God's control in our life. So whenever calamity comes to us, instead of turning our burden over to God or laying our burden on Him, what we do is we try to manage the situation ourselves. Right? We do. We worry and we spin and we think and we exhaust every possible resource, but we don't turn loose of the string. That's one thing we don't do. Because we suspect that if we turn loose of the string, we might lose control. And because of that fear, we often miss God's peace and God's provision. The reality is, guys, we can have control of our problems or we can have the peace and provision of God. But we cannot have both. It is an either-or kind of thing. And the reason that we stay so stressed and so burdened is because if some of you are CR people or Alcoholics Anonymous people, it is because we are afraid to let go and let God.
It's just that simple. But at the point that we dare to fully trust and to actually let go of the string and to perform as it were without a net, just trusting God and allowing Him to direct the flow of our life, it completely changes the dynamic that we have between us and the Lord. And we begin to experience the peace. And we begin to experience the lightness. And we begin to experience the provision that God wants for us to experience in our life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And and Lord, earlier I prayed that we would not only be challenged, but that we would know how to respond to that challenge. Father God, I would confess that in most areas of my life, I'm holding to the string fully as tight as anyone else in this room is. We all like to hold the string. We all like to maintain control. We would all appreciate help as long as that help didn't come with any strings attached. And yet, Heavenly Father, the reality is just by merit of us coming to Christ that that has the biggest string attached of all because you expect us to give uh, you our very selves I'm not even sure some of us have done that Father God I pray that you have impressed upon us this morning that our relationship with you is not to be a shallow one. It's not to be a dysfunctional one. It's not to be a one-way street where you bless, 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 and we sin, sin, sin. But it is to be a healthy two-way relationship. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And all you're asking in return is that we love you and that we serve you. Father God, help us to do that. Help us as your people more and more to learn how to trust you, to turn loose of the string, and to experience your grace and your provision in our lives. For we lift it to you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.